His talent made him a star. Okay, James Dean is next. James Dean. See, I'm an actor because it's the best way I know how to express myself. I'm not very good with talking. That's the kid I want to go with for Cal. Mr. Kazan, that young man is Cal. Is he really as difficult as everyone says he is? His past made him a mystery. His death would make him a legend. and welcome back to another episode of Based on a True Podcast, where we look at the old Hollywood lives and crimes that have made some good and questionable movies. Uh, Kristen and Emily, back with you again. And this time we are talking about James Dean. I'm kind of surprised that I've had this series for as long as I have, and I've never done any of the James Dean, both official films and the ones that are supposed to be loosely based on his life. Um, but we are, considering that it is another anniversary of his passing, we figured we'd actually do one in the month in which it happened. So we are looking at the more famous iteration of James Dean's life, which is the 2001 made-for-TNT movie, appropriately called James Dean. So I don't know about you, Emily. Before we start talking about how we've mythologized Dean in films, let's talk about Dean in the films he actually made. He only did three before he died. I've seen, finally seen all three. I saw Giant for the first time this year. So I've officially seen all three of his movies. And I love James Dean. I don't love him to the extent that some people do, but I see why he was a beloved performer. It's always very unfortunate to think of like the things he might have accomplished had he lived longer. And yet, I hate what his career has now represented, both in biopic and just in the world of acting. And that's where I come at it. James Dean, much like Marilyn, although to a different extent than Marilyn, has been co-opted into something that I don't really like. But on his own, the films he made, I mean, Rebel Without a Cause is fantastic. Giant is amazing. East of Eden's fine. I'm sorry, it's it's the one I like the least amount. But yeah, I, Emily, what are your just thoughts on James Dean as a performer. You know, I will totally agree with you that, that like East of Eden is probably low on my ladder of James Dean movies. It's just I'm not a Steinbeck fan. Steinbeck is just difficult for everyone. I like Giant. I've only seen it in bits and pieces, but like the bits and pieces that you've seen, he delivers just this in like very, very impactful performance. And Rebel is a classic for a reason. I mean, it did something that has never been done in cinema before, and I won't beleaguer those points. But I totally agree with you that the memory of James Dean has been so molded and rewritten and means something to performers, to audiences, to masculinity at large and things like that, that it just, it makes me feel really icky for this poor 24-year-old kid who died so young and really had no agency over how his performances would be construed in society at large. If he had managed to live longer, he would have been able to define his own legacy so much better. And he just didn't get the opportunity. And I feel like my feelings towards it are not great because I just feel bad for the poor kid. I just feel really bad for him. Yeah, it's impossible 
to not talk about him in the same way that we talk about Marilyn Monroe. And yet when Marilyn Monroe movies are made, there's always this air of misogyny that I can't get over. When James Dean movies are made, the few times they've been made, which is really surprising to me that there are only so many, there's more unofficial films that are maybe loosely inspired or have James Dean figures. We could have done the Anton Corbijn film that came out a couple years ago called Life that has Dane DeHaan and Robert Pattinson. It's technically a James Dean movie, albeit not an an official one. And I define official in the sense that it's actually supposed to be made about that person's life. It's got all the biopic tenants. Uh, And a lot of James Dean-esque movies don't. They try to maybe tell fictionalized versions or they really go out the rails, which which is weird. But in the same way that Marilyn movies are told by people that seek to own her in some way or are usually men that seem that to understand, quote unquote, what she was like as a person. A lot of the James Dean movies that have been made are oftentimes told by people that knew him, such as the case with this. Mm-hmm. Director Mark Rydell did know James Dean. And they also try to emphasize the genius, which is a dude thing that happens in a lot of biopics about men. They are made by men, written by men about male genius. So much like something like A Beautiful Mind, you know, if he was unorthodox and wild but damn it the the movies he made that genius is just yeah pouring out of him, which is always really troubling because it doesn't get at the heart of who Dean is. And I feel like my biggest gripe against this film is that it falls into the trap that a lot of biopics fall into, which is he lived as he acted. So Mm -hmm. James Dean's issues with his father that you see in a lot of his movies were because he had a lot of issues Mm -hmm. with his father. And whether that is true or not, it tends to be a very simplistic way of trying to understand a character without really understanding who they are. It's a simplified way in, which doesn't really do anybody any good. Just on on James Dean's persona too, you know, watching this movie, it was really hard to divorce a lot of what James Dean and the method acting have now stood for. And the fact that James Franco is playing the character also kind of was a problem for me. So we're going to get into it. Before somebody inevitably calls me a hypocrite, I was calling myself a hypocrite because I had vowed that we would not do biopics with problematic actors in them, which is tends to be my excuse for why we haven't done Beyond the Sea, which is a biopic that I genuinely like. Uh, But I didn't want to do it because of the spacey of it all. But that has kind of been shot in the foot because we're doing this film, which also has a problematic actor in it. So just fair warning, we know about James Franco. We know the stories. Uh, We are not discussing Mm -hmm. those elements. We are focusing on this film, this performance, and we will probably touch on those things just because I know that it is impossible to divorce art from the artist. But we are going to try our hardest. So James Dean, the 2001 film for TNT, coming out in the great heyday of biopics that we got in the late 90s, early aughts. We've done other episodes on films from those time periods. If you want, you can listen to our talk about Audrey Hepburn and Jennifer Love Hewitt playing Audrey Hepburn in the Audrey Hepburn story. So I, the 2000s was this really big, and we're going to do another one in the next month or so about another great old Hollywood biopic from the 2000s. ABC tended to do these a lot. And this was supposed to be TNT's big attempt to make 
one of these movies, which I'm kind of surprised that TCM, which is part of TNT, like they didn't do more of these because they could have, but this was supposed to be their big crown jewel. It's directed by Mark Rydell, who most people would know from directing On Golden Pond. It's written by uh, Israel Horowitz, who was more known as a French playwright. So I would love to know how he got this project because he does not seem suited to it at all. James Franco is pretty much the biggest name in this film. Not a lot of other names that I recognized right off the bat. So in the grand scheme of things, it is not as opulent as something like CBS's Blonde that they did, nor is it as terrible as something like, to use another Marilyn one, Goodbye Norma Jean, which is the gold standard of the crappiest old Hollywood biopics you would ever see. No, this is not Liz and Dick, which you can also listen to that episode that we did on Liz and Dick. I like Liz and Dick more than this movie, just fair warning. I've seen this twice, but Emily, I'm assuming this was a first time watch for you. What do you think? It wasn't. It came out when I was 15 and I definitely remember watching it in my bedroom on my 10 inch CRT TV. I had to look up in TV guide, physical TV guide to find out what station TNT was because I didn't really watch it. It wasn't really a thing back then. Oh, the early 2000s. This was before they had like white collar and stuff like that. It was just not a station anybody watched. So I feel like this was I mean, from a business perspective, this was clearly like TNT trying to become like a cable station because James Franco was really hot at the time. He was in Freaks and Geeks, which was an incredibly lauded television show. This was like, we're going to show you which one of these Judd Apatow kids is going to be a star and it's going to be James Franco because he's probably the most classically good looking one of them all. And meanwhile, you have Seth Rogen in the back, I'm sure, just like twiddling his fingers by one day one um, day i I will take over hollywood um i remember watching this when i was 15 thinking it was the height of tragedy because i was a hormonal 15 year old girl and uh you know watching it again as an adult was an experience because now i know more about james dean i know more about method acting i know more about how people who call themselves method actors act and uh i have lots conflicting probably I'm trying really hard not to be glib, which is normally how I approach everything. I I want to give people who love James Dean, you know, obviously no guff for loving James Dean and having lots and lots of strong feelings about him as an actor. But like, I have a hard time as a person who has worked very briefly in the industry and been a person who also works in like very collaborative environments of being like, man, that looks awful. That looks like a horrible work experience. And I don't have positive feelings about it. Yeah, I did not watch this when it came out. But I remember it being a big deal, much in the same way that when CBS did Elvis with Jonathan Rhys Myers, which I did watch, mm-hmm. was a big deal. And I don't really know why I didn't watch this one. I don't know if it was because I didn't really have a lot of feelings about James Dean. I wasn't watching a lot of TNT like you were. I was an impressionable child who had something better to do that day. I don't really know. But I, I ended up seeing this after, long after it had, it had come out and long after James Franco had become James Franco. It's definitely, I cannot stress enough, having seen so many of these made-for-TV old Hollywood biopics, it's definitely one of the gold standard ones, you know, in terms of having an A-list star, actual production value, a director that knows what movies are. It is definitely, I can see why for a lot of people it is a gateway into discovering James Dean, discovering old Hollywood. It works in that sense. But 
much like the the flip side of that, which is if you know anything about these people beyond these movies and you watch this, you start asking questions that only a true film nerd would start asking. And then you can start kind of tearing it down from there. And that is always my issue with this is that because it's a TV movie and we will talk, this did not start as a TV movie. This started as a huge deal, a huge Hollywood deal that transmogrified into this very small TV movie. And all I can think about is how in the year of our Lord 2023, we have not attempted a big scale mank level. Maybe mank is a bad example. Um, Like aviator level, okay, type of story about James Dean. I'm very surprised that we have not. We've had a million Marilyn movies and yet no one has really ever made the attempt to actually make an A-list, splashy James Dean movie. So as far as this film, though, it's fine. I always say it's fine every time I watch it, which I've watched this now more than once. I don't hate it enough to have deep feelings about it, but nor do I love it enough to remember it beyond, oh yeah, I did see this. And that tends to be the issue with a lot of the James Dean movies. I will give a shout out. We might discuss it maybe at some point in the future, but there's a 1970s James Dean movie with Stephen McHattie that I remember liking a lot more when I saw it because I watched both of them back to back. And I remember liking the 70s one more just because I felt like even though Stephen McHattie did not look like James Dean, he kind of Austin Butlered it. He embodied a lot of the elements. And we're going to get into that because James Dean in this movie, Franco's performance, Franco kind of looks like James Dean. If you squint, you can see why they cast him. And I do love that he kind of played James Dean. He continued that train. If you watched SNL when they did the Vincent Price Halloween special, he played James Dean very similar to how he played it here. And that's not a good thing. My issue is, is that because James Franco does passively look James Dean-esque, he uses that to kind of play the character very broadly. And I know he did a lot of research. I know he really like read books and watched movies and interviewed a lot of people that knew James Dean, but some of his acting in this is very showy. And I, I just kept thinking faces. James Dean would not have acted that way. No, the cry faces were very melodramatic. There's a scene where the film that he's working on is rapping and he's just sitting in the catwalks just sobbing because his family is going away. Yeah, this is really very ham-fisted in a way that doesn't feel like genuine emotion, which I have no doubt that James Dean in actuality had these emotions if they're being portrayed or being written into the film this way. But the way they're being portrayed by the actor playing James Dean is very insincere and a little bit Gross. Yeah, there's a lot of scrunched up faces, you know, which great example, you know, you watch James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause when he does the you're tearing me apart moment. It's not him just making an exaggerated face for the hell of it. It is the emotion and the anguish and the torment that is really making him upset. I never see that in James Franco. I always see it's a funny face. It's just a face that he's making, which is not good acting. It's also not really good method acting as well. I, I want to get into where this movie started because it is a long, weird release, you know, plan that they had. But I mentioned that this was planned as a big budget film. This was discussed as far back as the early 1990s. Warner Brothers wanted to do a biopic about James Dean. They hired Israel Horovitz very early in the process to write the script. He wrote 
what he considered, you know, looking at the, quote, psychological insight of James Dean that focused on the abandonment by his father. He also was really interested in kind of alluding to James Dean's homosexuality. And he said he did it by innuendo rather than explicitly, which we'll talk about the weird little gay moment that happens in this film, which, by the way, James Dean by by King. I mean, he definitely if he was not same sex oriented, definitely dabbled in bisexuality which go read about the threesome with eartha kid and paul newman and him like that's a great old hollywood story and i don't care do not email me and say "Eh, it's not true i don't care i will take that to my grave i will believe it forever I don't care. So those were the elements that he wanted to focus on, as well as the relationship between James Dean and Pierangeli. So Michael Mann was going to make this in 1993, and they were going to film it in 94, and it was either going to be Brad Pitt or Johnny Depp playing the character. Now, this is 93 Brad Pitt and Johnny Depp. We did not know what we know now. Just remember that. And, And honestly... I, those are pretty the big much the only names I'm sure you would have found in the early 90s, short of an unknown to play those play James Dean. 93 Johnny Depp would have been really interesting. 93 yeah. Johnny Depp. Just need to emphasize that. 93. So I think that would have been really great. But then Michael Mann really wanted this young unknown actor named Leonardo DiCaprio to play the character. And again, I can see it. I can see why. Gary Oldman was also going to be in the film in some sort of supporting role, which it was Gary Oldman in 93. Could have literally been playing anybody. He could have been playing Pierangeli for all we know. I mean, he was that kind of actor at the time. And Michael Mann decided he wasn't going to do it in 94. He went on to go make another little movie that you might have heard of called Heat. He put this movie to bed. Uh, he also didn't really think Leonardo DiCaprio was going to work. He, he thought he was too young. He wanted to wait a little bit. So they replaced him with another director. They were going to make this in 1994 with the director who was the former artistic director of Canada's Stratford Festival. He'd also done musical theater. So that's a stretch to go from a director like Michael Mann to a director who had done musical theater. So they had to rewrite the script because Israel Horowitz was playwriting in Europe. They were going to get a $20 million budget. And then this director stepped down and was replaced by Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper was a very close friend of James Dean. And Dennis Hopper met with Leonardo DiCaprio, but he ended up leaving the film. And by that point, this is 95. DiCaprio was still the guy who was going to play James Dean. But once they started falling through another director... They contracted Mark Rydell to make the movie in 96. Mark Rydell also knew James Dean. But by this point in 96, Leonardo DiCaprio decided he wanted a lot more money because by 96, DiCaprio was DiCaprio. He had just come off of Romeo and Juliet. He was going to make another little film that you might have heard of called Titanic. So he wanted way too much money. And they didn't have the budget for that. So they decided to rewrite the script again. They hired another, uh, they hired a composer by this point, but they still didn't have an actor. And then eventually they decided they were going to cast either Ethan Hawke or Stephen Dorff. And this is what, 96, 97. So Ethan Hawke, I get. Stephen Dorff, I don't. The tooth even at that point. Like. Yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, Ethan Hawke did what, Hamlet in like 98, 99. So. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's starting to get a little up there. Um, but the movie just could never get beyond just talking about it. Uh, and then eventually Warner Brothers decided that 
they would just make it a TV movie because according to their producer, Bill Gerber, he said, quote, it was just hard to find bankable names that the studio would finance a $20 million movie with. And there were marketing problems. He died in a highway accident in 1955. So almost everyone would know the outcome of the movie. And James Dean also isn't that well known by the general movie going public these days, which let's break that down for a second. I get the budget. 20 million is not a lot of money. In in 1996, it was not a lot of money. So I get the, you aren't going to find somebody that's going to take the pittance, that you, Hollywood pittance that you're asking for. But also the fact that he died in an accident. So we already know what the end of the movie is going to be. I feel like that's something that, I don't know, maybe they were feeling in the late 90s, but with the lack of internet, I mean, I don't know. And then to say that, well, nobody really knows him. So if nobody knows him, then they might not know that he died. I mean, we have Elvis movies that we are still making where we know that Elvis didn't live to be an old man. So we're not really sure what that's going to end. Like. There there are kids today that don't know Titanic is a real movie. I mean, they're based on real events. So I'm not really clear on that. But also to say that, like, nobody really knows who James Dean was. I always say that's a BS excuse, because if you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't be making a 20 million dollar movie. You wouldn't be giving these people money to make any movie. I know of a lot of old Hollywood biopics that did not ever go beyond a script stage because a studio boss told them, Nobody knows who this person is, Carol Lombard. You know, like that's that's always shocking to me. So I would like to know, though, and I don't really know if anybody knows this, but Marilyn's always been in the zeitgeist. And I feel like James Dean has also always been in the zeitgeist. So I don't really know, like, at what point everybody just knew who James Dean was. I mean, there are kids today that may not know the Titanic was a real event, but they know who James Dean is. I mean, it's that's a really weird thing to say, because, again, I was a I was a youth during the 90s. And I distinctly recall, like, walking through the mall and seeing T-shirts with James Dean's face on it. You know, it may not have been in the classiest stores, might have been in the window of a Spencer's gifts, but there was definitely like road sign clocks with James Dean's face on it. Is this because I grew up just outside of New York City and then it was slightly more cultural touch point, but I'm like, it was also a suburban mall and I was looking at a Spencer's gifts. Wasn't that classy? Like I had assumed that was pretty much across the board. Yeah, maybe like when I was eight, I didn't know who James Dean was, but it's hard for me to understand that like Gen Xers wouldn't know who James Dean was in the 90s and in the 90s. That's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason a lot of these biopics had their heyday in the mid two thousand, you know, early 2000s, end of the 90s was that 30 year gap, right? I mean, you have a lot of baby boomers who remember who these people are. That's why you're making the movie. Mm -hmm. I think that that was just the excuse to justify transitioning it from a big budget film to a TV movie and not acting like they lost something. Yeah. But they still had a huge casting call. I mean, five, James Franco beat out allegedly 500, you know, promising actors to play this role. And I'd like to assume that all of the budget went to him because, again, you have some good character actors in here. I mean, Enrico Colatani plays Elia Kazan. This was before Veronica Mars. Uh, Edward Herrmann is in here very briefly as Raymond Massey pre Gilmore Girls. But I mean, he was very successful character actor. But those are it. I feel like they just kind of yeah. 
passed those two and they gave Franco all the money and they were like, well, gonna have to work with what we got for the rest of this. I think that that's always the issue with this movie is that you can see how it was picked away at to eventually get it into a 95 minute film. I didn't realize how short this movie was because it spends such a long amount of time with young James Dean as a child and then him studying at the actor studio and then the last like what 30 minutes is like pure Anjali all of these other movies did it <laughs> happens in a very brief amount of time and I'm sure that that is part of the problem with an actor who burst out of the gate and then died you know time does feel very compressed but just as you're starting to really feel like you know something about James Dean the movie is over I mean, I feel, I feel like it is all predicated on the storytelling arc of the fact that you have to set up why he's got daddy issues if your entire conflict or your understanding of James D is that he's got daddy issues up and spend a significant amount of time showing the abuse or emotional uh mistreatment that he received allegedly. I don't actually know. I'm assuming it's accurate at the hand of his father, which was incredibly gross but also not that outside of the norm for like poor people in the 30s this was during a time where people shortly after you know things like uh, the depression and the dust bowl where people would just be like i'm dropping all eight of my children off at the orphanage good luck because times are really really hard and so we are dealing with an incredibly interesting perspective on sort of mid-century masculinity here and I feel like they spent a lot of time saying, like, how could you ever be ex expect this man to be emotionally stable when he had a childhood like this? But they also don't tear it apart enough to look into, like, why mid-century masculinity was the way it was. So it's like, oh, you could have really benefited for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, actually, to make this a really interesting movie. So it's way too short and it spends a lot of time on something that they don't even get into enough. Yeah, I mean, again, and it's impossible not to compare this to the myriad of Marilyn movies because James Dean falls into the same trap. And that is, at least unlike Marilyn, where Marilyn had a lot of, whether disputed or not, sad tragedies in her young life. You know, she had a mother who was mentally ill. There were claims of sexual abuse. She went from foster home to foster home. I mean, Marilyn has the prototypical sad childhood. James Dean definitely had a sad childhood. And I hate to say like, but it's not as bad as Marilyn's, but it's really not, at least in the way this film portrays it, which is like his mom dies. He's nine years old. He's sent to Indiana to go live with his grandmother by his dad, who does not kiss him goodbye. You know, so he's got to sit in the train mm -hmm. compartment with the coffin. And his big hang up is that his dad didn't come to visit him, and his dad never came to see him. Marilyn also had a father that did not come to see her. Uh, so I feel like that's kind of their big thing. Like, this is just what, what genius fosters. They all have daddy issues. But the problem is, is that the way that Israel Horowitz's script portrays those daddy issues, it's like every movie James Dean made was an attempt to appease his father. And mm -hmm. it feels very... To use another example of another biopic movie, it's very walk hard. You know, mm. like you're waiting for the dad to just come by and keep saying the wrong son died. Uh, you know, even though there are, is no other son. But he, James Dean goes to visit his dad and his dad doesn't want to talk to him. 
four reasons that we're never privy to. And like even his dad's second wife says to him, like, what is your deal, dude? Can you talk to your kid? He's coming to see you. You can't give him anything. There is, and it's old Hollywood biopic 101. There is a conversation that takes place, which I'm about 99% certain is fictional, where the night before he gets in Little Bastard and goes off on the road, he has finally this long talk with his dad and his dad tells him about how you know your mother might have been sleeping around but like she also is a free spirit a lot like you and that's why i can't deal with you because you remind me of her it's very like thanks dad for telling me my mom was kind of skanky but also that you do deep down love me that's supposed to make it all okay but then isn't it horrible he dies before him and dad got to play catch or something it's the most ham-fisted father-son moment that I have seen in a minute. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away all in one day. And it's just, oof, it's rough. And it's like also this, I think it's the night before he shoots the big like oil rig scene in Giant where he's like, I can feel joy now because my father admits that he has feelings for me. And it's just like, oh, golly. Are we saying that his acting would have turned to crap now? Because like, that's what he was using to fuel all his methodness. And now that him and his dad are reuniting, are the fates saying, well, shit, we're going to have to kill him now because he's got nothing to offer us. You know, it's really weird, too, because the way this movie is written, the only conflict James Dean ever had in his life was that his daddy ignored him. And that is that's rough. I will not discount, you know, parental emotional abuse in any way, shape or form. But this movie really goes through the beats of James' life of like everything else was less greased. It was just easy peasy. He walks into acting school and he says, I want to be an actor. And the and the teacher says, like, do you really? And he says, yeah, I do. And all of a sudden he's in acting school. And you're like, wow, golly. And, you know, the guy's like one scene cut. The ahead. guy's like, do you have money? And he's like, nope. And he's like, well, you're in. Who? <laughs> I, I have many friends who have wanted to be actors and couldn't be because like it, no matter when you're trying to do it, it's really hard to break in. You know, he does one scene half drunk without his glasses on in order to audition for the actor studio and bang zoom here and go. We just can't deny your genius. So you kind of wonder like at what point was he ever going to get over the daddy issues? At what point can he just be like, I don't know, Jack Warner just paid me a million bucks. Maybe things are okay and I can just hire a therapist and get over this. But no, no, the crux is always daddy issues. And and you're so right about the fact that this movie does present his ascent to fame. It's not even Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. You know, it is just straight up. It is like the stock market just hit. Oh, I don't know stock market terminology, but like the slot machine hits double zeros all the time. A black man in acting class and everybody's just like, oh, he's passionate. And you're like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, he literally shows up at a at a at audition with broken glasses and the manager's like something. Can you read with those? And he's like, well, no, but I, I can't get them fixed. I don't have the 10 bucks. And he's like, here, 
take $10 and go get them fixed and come back, which I love that they're like, you get a second shot because you don't have your reasonable accommodation. Um, So you're going to have to come back. And he uses the money to buy a hot dog and have the hot dog vendor get him off the script. And then he comes back with no glasses. And the guy's like, well, what happened to that $10? He's like, well... I used it to eat, but I also memorized all the dialogue. And he's like, I forgive you, you lovable old scamp. Which I was like, what I'm hearing is that disabled actors can work. They just are not James Dean level charming enough to get the $10 from you. So thank you for that. But but there's really no real struggle, you know, and there are so many moments. And these are things that I feel like Boz Lerman's Elvis made fun of, rightfully so, you know, in the same like he's white moment. In in the in Elvis, there's a moment in this film where he's auditioned for Cal Trask in East of Eden, and Elliot Kazan's like, "That's my Cal Trask," and this random woman sitting in the back of the room is like, "No, he is Cal Trask," <laughs> and it's just, "Hi, who are you? Do you have any bearing on this plot?" Random woman telling me what I already know. It's very silly. But funny, I mean, I don't think that's the point of the movie. I don't think it's meant to be humorous. Uh, You're supposed to just really be dazzled by this kid. And I mean, sure, I've seen the movies. So I know James Dean was a fantastic actor. But I genuinely have a hard time believing that everybody, and I do mean everybody, was saying like, this guy, this guy's got it. He's the best actor we've ever seen in the history of acting. You know, it's just, it's really mind boggling to watch Every single person, except for, uh, you know, the one actor he's acting across from in in, uh, in uh, Rebel Without a Cause of just be like, this man, there's a line in Life of Brian, which is a little bit crass, but it's just absolutely perfect for this sen- scenario of just like, they think the sun shines out of his ass. Like, it's absolutely just like nobody in the history of time who ever met him ever looked down upon James Dean like he was the second coming of Jesus. And it's a really interesting sort of biopic thing that happens and probably shouldn't have people who knew a guy make their biopic because they really want to uphold the absolute godlike talent of James Dean. And it's like biopics are supposed to kind of tell you that like this was a person who lived a life for me. It's hard to watch the hero worship just like endlessly. If anything, I think I would have liked to known, you know, and there's a a quote by one of the people who was a friend of Dean's at the time, uh, James Bella, who was the um, son of the author, James Warner Bella, who did know James Dean. And he said, quote, Dean was a user. If he could get something by performing an act, that's what he would do. And he, this quote is more in relation to his sexuality. But I think it also would have been interesting to look at in the context of here, You do see many instances of him, I would argue, using people purely to get ahead. The sweet girl that he meets, Christine, who was based on one of James Dean's girlfriends uh, during his actor studio days, meets him once. She's just typing on a typewriter in the agent's office and they go on one date. He doesn't even want to know her name until after they start making out. And next scene, they're living together and they're they're going to st- audition for the actor studio together. And you're never really clear on what the relationship is. Has it ended when he met Pieranjali? What's the deal? And I would have liked some of that. I would have liked that. Is he utilizing these people as a means to get ahead? You can still care about people 
and also exploit them. Um, and I would have liked that element because that is something that tends to we see in Marilyn movies. We see Marilyn movies about her dating Johnny Hyde or or Joseph Skank and and sleeping with them as a means of getting ahead. Those movies aren't afraid to question like was Marilyn casting couch but we don't see that here the movie just utilizes it as a fact of his life and i would have liked that i would have liked to have people discuss you know the people that you kind of use along the way and without he might not have been meaning to hurt people but would have been nice to see a little nuance there i mean they do a really good job of you know this movie made me have sympathy for Martin Landau, which is really difficult to do because he was a notoriously not good person. But, you know, he's act- he's going through auditions in New York uh, with, with Martin Landau. And, he, you know, he um, lands a big break. He quits at the most inopportune time. And then he asks Martin Landau, like, why did I do it that way? Like, what what's wrong with me? And he responds, you're an ambitious, selfish son of a bitch. And that's the only moment we get where anybody is like, maybe you might want to like consider other human beings' feelings. And everybody's like, no, it's actually a positive trait for our dear, like, uh, our dear James Dean. And that's it. That's all we get. That's like the only moment of pushback he gets. You don't even really get any introspection in his relationship with, with Pierre Anjali, which there are a lot of other elements of this movie that are very interesting on their own. Have had we given them some serious time, and I'm convinced that had this been a big budget film, the relationship with Pierre Anjali would have been a far bigger part of the movie, as opposed to just maybe the last 30 minutes of this film, because their relationship did define both of them for good and ill. They met while they were, she was filming The Silver Chalice, which was the guy that she was standing with supposed to be Paul Newman, because he did not look like Paul Newman at all. But she did make the Silver Chalice with Paul Newman. I think it was supposed to be Paul Newman, but it's hard to find anyone who looks like Paul Newman. So I might just let that one slide. Exactly. Uh, but they they did meet. They had a very tempestuous, uh, predominantly sexual relationship. And much like the movie claims, their relationship couldn't work out. She had a very domineering mother who was pretty much a stage mother who put both of her daughters into acting. And he was not Catholic. Which I always argue is was was an excuse because of the fact that I think her mother was more threatened by the fact that James Dean was wild and rebellious and probably would have severed the connection, the very codependent relationship that that her mother had with her. Much like the movie says, she was foisted into this very quick marriage with Vic Damone who was a horrible human being who abused her. So good idea there. And when James Dean died. It, they said it did affect Pierre Anjali very much. It, it, you know, she married multiple times. She had a very bitter custody dispute with Vic Damone. And then she eventually died at 39 of a barbiturate overdose, which is in dispute. But, you know, that that's the, the legal uh, cause of death. So it did really affect her life. She said that he was the love of her life. Um, supposedly, when James Dean's items were being sorted after his death, he there were a lot of things with her name on them that he had kept. So these two very much had a close relationship, but you would not know that from this film, which treats it as like they meet, they fool around. He's maybe making early porn of her. I'm not really sure what that's about. There is literally a scene where he has a camera and he's like shooting her in a nightie. They get into an argument. She slaps him. He punches her. 
So maybe some domestic violence and then they hook up again. It tells me nothing about what these two people saw in each other. And mind you, they were both very young. They might not needed to see much in each other other than the fact that you're hot and you're hot. If the, considering how this relationship for people that knew, you know, people that did research outside of this movie know how much that affected both of them. I do feel it is very sad to treat it so simplistically the fight scene that ends up into a cutaway a love scene it, it, nowadays it does not have very consensual overtones uh the overtones are very essay and not pleasant but there's sexy sacks underneath so maybe they're just trying to like gloss over it it was i forgot weird. the sack scene in this i was like oh where's the sax man like he's just in the corner yep lurking um like i do think that at that time if you were like Italian, which her mother was, and Catholic, uh, you know, Catholicism had a much, you know, it does just have a stronger hold on Italian culture than this. And like, she probably would have had real trouble with her uh, being in a relationship with someone who wasn't Catholic, because just Catholicism it means so much to Italian people, especially, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. But it's hard for us to really grapple or wrap around our minds around an adult woman being controlled by her mother just to this extent. You're a legal adult in America, so you don't really need your mom's permission to do anything. I understand like your mom shunning you or treating you horribly because you don't listen to her, but you're an adult. Like You can do whatever you want. And I think that's something that's just really hard for us to fully grasp unless the movie wanted to spend the time showing just how much she wanted to please her mother. But that would mean treating Pierre like a person and not just a moment in glorious James Dean life. Exactly. And that's really it. I mean, she really is an afterthought. This movie's paramount storyline is the father-son relationship. I do want to touch on the weird homosexual undertone that is here for one scene and one scene only. There is a moment where James Dean is introduced to a guy named Rogers Brackett, who was a real person in James Dean's life. And the guy tells him, you know, hey, I can help you get ahead. Just come to this place at midnight. And he shows up and it's something out of like Ryan Murphy's Hollywood, uh, where the implication is, is that he is going to have to sleep with a man in order to get ahead. And again, I don't know if that was a bigger part of Israel Horowitz's script. It is one scene in this movie. It has no bearing on the plot. And it feels very performative as a means of say, of acknowledging what a lot of people, but according to the producer, not a lot of people knew who James Dean was. So I'm not no sure why we had to acknowledge it, but that James Dean was a bi king. I mean, he was. And there's been a lot of back and forth about whether James Dean was gay or not. I do love that the movie also includes the interview that he did do with a magazine that said he he said, quote, I'm not a homosexual, but I'm also not going to go through life with one hand tied behind my back. Which is a great quote, by the way. They use that yeah. in this movie, too. Uh, and it's just this weird, like, Jack Warner's like, you're not a homosexual, are you? And he's like, well, maybe. I mean, does it matter? And then James... Dean puts some gum on his seat. Again, lovable scamp. But there's a lot of contention about whether James Dean might have been gay. A lot of people assume that he was kind of gay for pay, which was more in terms of advancing his career, which again, would have been very interesting to see, you know, that was a thing. Mark Rydell has also talked about this. He said, quote, I don't think he was essentially homosexual. I think that he had very big appetites and I think he exercised them. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a... 
very non-committal quote. But I mean, we won't know. I, I think if anything, I always get irked when stuff like this is quote unquote acknowledged with just a scene. If you don't want to give it any depth, then don't include it. And I know that the old Hollywood community gets very touchy about which of these stars were LGBTQ or not. But my thing always is, is like, if you're going to talk about it, let's talk about it. Don't just throw in a scene where he might have gone to a party where he had sex with men and that's it. You know, don't make it performative. If you're going to do that, then just don't include it at all. And I can do my research and tell you all that he was a bi king. Yeah. Listen, so much of history gets explained by just the existence of bi or pansexuality where, you know, you read things about authors or or artists who are like i'm married to a woman but i'm writing very romantic like letters to my best friend from childhood and it's like yes that is explained entirely by the sexual spectrum ta-da that's answered and so a lot i completely agree with you that it was like they seem so terrified again this is 2001 it's a wildly different world that this is getting made in then than it is now this is before any kind of gay marriage was legal this is just we were barely in straight media talking about gay people it was just a very 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 different political world that this is getting made in but at the same time why mention it at all i feel so much like a last hurrah for james dean's buddies from when he was a kid to kind of like talk about basically what a what a little scamp he was and like he would do anything to get ahead and he was like oh but it's a tv movie so i guess i'll go to this gay party and it and i really am grossed out by that by someone you know who's now an adult and it's really gross to position bisexuality like that as like a tool to use but i also remember being an adult near adult human being in 2001 and totally understanding that no one was ever going to say this man is bisexual and isn't that great and we just keep on walking like i i don't know in case you're curious nicholas Rates was the first one to say that he was uh, on the record say that james dean was bisexual and i that's that's what i believe martin landau said he was very much not gay but elizabeth taylor said he definitely was gay go figure i think the best answer comes from uh openly gay journalist kevin sesums for uh poz magazine and he said when he he interviewed her about james dean's sexuality liz taylor said quote he hadn't made up his mind he was only 24 when he died but he was certainly fascinated by women he flirted around so i think that's the best answer liz taylor's answer which is that like it's 24 he didn't know what he wanted Maybe he would have eventually settled on one or the other. Maybe not. But I, yeah, I do think this movie just kind of like casually throwing it out as, oh, he was gay for pay. It does does him a disservice. The last thing I want to bring up is the ending, which, spoiler alert, James Dean died at 24. So you should know. Um, I know. Uh, I do love that they recreate Little Bastard, the car, rather faithfully, which again, where is the story? Where's the documentary about that car? That little bastard has a really interesting history. Google it if you have not. That car has not been seen, I think, in over 60 years. Nobody knows where it is. Is it destroyed? Is it christening somewhere in the ether? We don't really know. But very fascinating story just behind the car alone. But my big issue with the ending is that when they are driving down the road, which, by the way, I think James Dean was going 130 miles an hour with sun in his eyes. He sees the guy turning left and the guy in the passenger seat is like, 
you he's turning left. You should do something about that. He's like, ah, he's got to see us. And then they crash. So are we kind of putting the complicity for James Dean's demise on James Dean? I would say yes, because the movie has been leading up to that the entire time by saying, oh, you Jack Warner told you don't buy motorcycles, don't buy fast cars. But it's historically untrue. If you've read about the accident, James Dean was going 130 miles an hour with the sun in his eyes. He would not have seen the car. That's why he did not slow down. I think James James Dean knew how to drive. Like that's not the th- like that never ceases to throw me at the end of this movie. He's like, I'm not slowing down for this guy. He's got to see us. Why would you not slow down for a man that you know is clearly going to hit you? Which it's just factually untrue. It is a piece. It's a line that does not have to exist historically speaking. Turnip Seed, the guy driving the car, that literally was his last name, did not, was was in the wrong. He made a left-hand turn. He should not have. But James Dean didn't see him. Yeah. I don't know why we yeah. include that line. Yeah, you know, my, I grew up, my dad raced cars, like, before I was born and even afterwards. Like, and one of the things did you know about race car drivers, and I'm not, maybe he was 24 and dumb as a bag of hair because he was 24 and most people under 20, you know, 24 are dumb as a bag of hair. Race car drivers are very careful and they know what they can do and they know what they can pull off. And and so it would have to be extremely extenuating circumstances for a race car driver to do something that reckless and dumb. And yes, it is a person turning left's, you know, job to not turn in front of a car, but also a hundred and some odd miles an hour is really hard to gauge if you've never seen a car going a hundred and some odd miles an hour. So maybe it was just a confluence of everything bad happening that can happen in vehicles on a country road. And that's probably what happened. But they definitely put all of the weight on James Dean in this and also with a subtle air of perhaps he was taking his own life there. I got a definite undercurrent of that, but I don't know. Cause they put a lot of onus on his breakup with Pierre too, happening right before he gets in the accident. Is there, are they blaming this on her? Like if she just hadn't married victim own, would he have not as driven as recklessly? And it's, it's, it's complex and also never really just saying like, it was an accident. These things happen. People by the hundreds and thousands die in car accidents every single year, especially when you're going a hundred some odd miles an hour. Make no mistake. Many people did say that, that, you know, Pierangeli is the reason he died much in a way, like a lot of people blame Audrey Hepburn for Bill Holden's alcoholism. Um, It's misogyny. It's up. But my, my big issue too, is that there was an inquest after the James Dean death which we could get into the weeds about all of this. And they really couldn't ascribe fault per se because there were a variety of factors. He was going left. James Dean was going too fast. There was a, the, the cars were I mean, the car that James Dean was driving in was destroyed. You know, the guy got the was his passenger was ejected from it. You know, it was a horrific crash. But they ultimately did find fault. The inquiry at the time blamed James Dean for going too fast. And possibly not being able to see the the sun thing, I think, was more like studying patterns where the sun would have been at that time. And the assumption is that he couldn't have seen. So so they did blame him. But it's only been, I think, in the last like 20, 30 years that I've heard a lot of people say 
technically the guy who was driving the other car who was not injured. He had mild injuries. He walked away from it, was definitely in the wrong for crossing left in a lane he should not have, knowing that the straightaway couldn't couldn't really see him. So there's still a lot of discussion about this uh, at the end of the day. It just never ceases to baffle me that the guy would include a line like, eh, he's going to see famous last words. Um, Which, by the way, that means that the narration that is happening in this movie is from James Dean Beyond the Grave, which I have not seen a Beyond the Grave narration since we did our episode on Wired which you should just go listen to that episode and never watch the movie because Wired is terrible. But it's been a minute since I've gotten like a beyond the grave death montage thing. Yeah, um, overall, I, I've seen way better old Hollywood bi- TV biopics. I've also seen way worse. This is very much middling. James Franco is fine. He probably was the only person we ever would have gotten to play James Dean in the 2000s. I struggle to think of who we'd cast now. Because I don't know the youth actors these days. Um, so I don't I don't even know who could play. And most of the people I would suggest are way old. Older than James Dean was when he died. Uh, let me clarify. So he's yeah. the best we would have cast. But everything else, you can feel the on the cheap element to it. I do wish this had been given maybe a little bit more money. Or had just been a theatrical film. Because I think a lot of what hampers it is the fact that it's a $20 million TV movie, which I know $20 million, nothing to sneeze at. But with a subject like this, you need to put, you got to spend money to make money. And that's, I think, James Dean 2001's biggest failing. Um, Emily, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I want to agree with you that like I, a lot of this is because I don't know actors underneath the age of 30. But also a lot of this is because I can't think of that many actors that... Hollywood is actually like cultivated underneath the age of 30. And a lot of the people who are the right age to be doing this, and I'm just going to say something a little bit controversial. It's just, they're all working on like Netflix and streaming shows, which does not cultivate an actor to the caliber of James Dean. And so it's, it's really difficult to think about this. I think that James Dean does deserve a much more sympathetic, nuanced, deep dive by being earlier in the show. But there, there's something that's clearly happening in the industry now, whereas like nobody is really getting a new wave of movie stars, a new wave of people who can command a screen like James Dean could and anybody trying to play James Dean in a biopic ever could, you know, and it's just a real bummer to think about just a discrepancy in the industry compared to like what James Dean was working with, with, you know, even on the cheap, even, you know, with the, the lousy costuming and stuff like that in this of just like, it's a real sadness to see movies being made in the 1950s with, Again, super inexpensively, quite a lot of these were being just churned out, but we're our industry isn't even there anymore. Like, I don't feel like, and it's kind of a bummer. And that's my big takeaway from this of just like, I'm actually really sad that I couldn't think of anybody who is a good enough actor or a cultivated enough actor to play him in a biopic now. Also, if this biopic teaches people anything, it is that the method has been hijacked and utilized by horrible men who just use it to justify bad behavior. James Dean utilized the method, I would like to think, properly. So be less 
you know, Jared Leto more James Dean. Uh, I was going to say, I literally have a note that says, I feel like Jared Leto saw this and was like, aha, and like, <laughs> not good. It's not good. Exactly. Well, listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of Based on a True Podcast. Your patronage literally makes episodes like these happen. We hope to be back with a new episode soon. Please be sure to listen to the main feed where we have all of the new episodes. You can follow us on all social media, including Facebook, Twitter, whatever you're calling Twitter these days, Instagram. Those tend to be the heavy hitters. I am always at therap.com as well as on all social media at Kristen Lopez 88 Emily Edwards, you are also at all social media platforms at Ms. Emily Edwards, correct? That is it. That is me. Yeah. And I can't quit Twitter no matter how hard I try. I know. We all try. Uh, we will be back with a new episode soon. Till then. Bye.